you are listening. This is your community radio station, WCAALP. I have a voice in Albany, your Grand Street Community Arts. I'm Dan Platt, um, the de facto program manager, radio manager, station manager. So I don't really take on that title. At number two, you've been listening to the Soul Gold Oldies Hour or Oldies Program on the Hot 100. But right, we're gonna move on. Um, I'm gonna take over the stream for a moment. It's not really a stream; it's a playlist I made. Obviously, if, if you've been paying attention in the last few weeks, you've been noticing, oh, it's just playing the same stuff every day until maybe you know a few weeks pass, and then it'll change to it'll update. Um, and that's my that's my doing. Um, starting to get off my butt and get the station up and running again. We have actually been making some progress, and it will happen. Uh, not just saying that uh, it might happen, or we don't know how long it's going to take. It, it'll it'll get done when when I finish it. Um, but otherwise, I'm going to get started early with my show my program at eight o'clock um, by playing in the local. Situation at the Amazon warehouse in Skodak. Going to play 12-minute video from Status Quo of Jordan Cheriton, a former beat reporter for the Young Turks. It's called Amazon Steps Up Union Busting as Second Warehouse Votes for Union. This is a good intro, and I've yet to watch it. Kind of ALB1, uh, the Skodak uh, warehouse right outside of Albany, that in two days has uh, another historic uh, union election. And Heather, you've been leading the charge here. Uh, you haven't been working here that long, which is kind of interesting that you got in and right away kind of saw a lot, a lot was needed. Tell me uh, when you started here, what made you want to organize a union? So there was actually a variety of things. And I guess, you know, I would say the first red flag was the fact that I had put on a safety harness and a vest for the first time in my life. Never driven a piece of heavy machinery, never wore any kind of equipment, but in two days after that vest was on, I was operating this piece of heavy machinery and raising a cage to to retrieve items, mattresses, air conditioners, and heights of 25 feet. So to me, that raised a little bit of alarm bells. How is this happening? And then shortly after, I started to hear stories about um, the equipment breaking in the warehouse. I started to see more frequent ambulances. I started to hear injuries, people um, not getting approved for their short-term disability. Um, and then- I feel like that's a crime. I mean, you need a license to operate a forklift. Maybe Amazon is saying, these aren't forklifts. These are our own specially designed machines that aren't forklifts, and thus you don't need a license to operate them. You know, I had heard a story um, from a worker about him suffering a stroke in the warehouse on Thanksgiving and he wasn't properly compensated, came back. So I started to really see workers that were in need of that extra support and bringing them together to unite against Amazon so that they could, you know, get those better working conditions and those safer working conditions. And uh, from what I was told, Amazon seems to have more consultants here, uh, union busters than managers in, in some cases. Talk to me about uh, the organizing and what you guys have been up against in terms of the union busting. So, I mean, it was no secret when we started this journey that we were going to be up against Amazon and their $4.3 million invested into, um, you know, the meetings and the propaganda throughout the warehouse. So uh, more recently, we've seen the warehouse completely flooded with operations managers from throughout the country that will be gone the minute the election is over, and these employee relations consultants and even HR managers. And they're claiming that they're here to talk about the working conditions and improving them. So you can imagine, you know, that there was a little bit of um, information revealed when we had a fire and with, the, and with the warehouse flooded with operations managers, employee relations, and HR, that there were missing fire extinguishers on some of the pillars. How is that even possible? If you're here to help us with working conditions and to understand our concerns, how are you walking around, talking to workers, asking them about their feeling on the union, which they're not supposed to do, pulling them into meetings, and you don't even see that we needed fire extinguishers when a fire broke out. Um, and they, you know, all of our concerns have fallen on deaf ears. So they've made it clear that they're really not here to help. 
and they've made it clear by examples like that. I also find it interesting because Alabama had a fire. They closed down for several days. You guys have a fire. They closed down the day shift, but suddenly it's okay to come back for the night shift. So it seems like a lot of, in Staten Island, they were like, no, you're coming back. So it seems like uh, some places will close down. Here, they brought you back pretty quickly. They did. They did. Um, and actually, um, I was on the phone the next day with our attorneys and OSHA. I'm expressing my concern not only with regard to the missing fire extinguishers, but the fact that even if the building was cleared by the fire department um, and local authorities, when I arrived at the, when I was hearing feedback, um, I was concerned for the workers that suffer things such as, um, you know, asthma, shortness of breath, heart conditions. What about the fact that there might be a lingering odor that could affect some of those additional health ailments. And then when I arrived on the property to check things out, the doors were open with the fans on full blast. If the building is safe, then why are the doors open with the fans on full blast? Because, I mean, look right now, there's one door open with no fan. So I think that that basically was also a heightened level of concern. And talk to me about the warehouse. Uh, seems like five, 600 workers. What's kind of the mood in there now? Because obviously there's signs everywhere, union, uh, third party, and you guys want to make money and blah, 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 blah. Uh, I know, you know, there's a lot of interest because you guys got the green light to hold an election. Uh, do you think a lot of the people that have been on the fence are, are starting to gravitate more towards voting yes? I do. I really do. Um, I think that they're starting to really see through Amazon's true intention of shutting down the union. And I think that they're starting to also expand on their knowledge about the Amazon labor union that we work with together. I mean, this is a unity thing. So I think that they're educating themselves. They're having more conversations. They're learning more. And they're really reaching out to get the information to make an informed decision, which is incredibly inspiring and powerful. So I feel a shift in the energy and I feel a shift in the right direction. Sorry. It's just crazy. I mean, you're hearing people with prostate cancer being fired. They're denying his unemployment benefits. You have somebody who probably had a concussion. They put him in a lift rather than an ambulance, which if he had a if he had a brain bleed, that delay, uh, I mean, this is a trillion dollar company and they're basically just penny pinching all around. They're beyond penny pinching. We were penny pinching my, you know, years ago. Before COVID, they were penny pinching. And now what they're doing is just plain negligence. They're not only neglecting to, to pay us, you know, those wages and provide us those benefits. They're denying unemployment claims. They're denying short-term disability. They are denying um, workers' comp when it comes to injuries, leaving workers without pay for several weeks, if at all. And I think that that's in par. Amazon has created, you know, kind of a strategic way of getting people out the door rather than providing them with the, the benefits that they're entitled to up to and including if somebody is disabled, somebody gets hurt on the job, they don't accommodate. They don't pay the benefits. They'd rather just see them go on their way, leaving workers injured and suffering. And that they don't want workers. And I mean, we're a manual labor company, right? So they see somebody is injured and somebody in need and they'd rather force them out. And uh, can you kind of talk about, we keep hearing politicians, the media, the economy's coming back, a lot of jobs. Maybe there's a lot of jobs, but they seem to be kind of this hamster wheel of exploitation. Uh, you have people working multiple jobs that work at Amazon. You have somebody talking about doing radiation in the morning, then coming in for a 12-hour shift. Can you kind of talk about the quality of the jobs uh, in this, quote-unquote, booming economy? The quality of the jobs at Amazon? Well, here's the thing. Some of the people, you know, I've been asked the question, well, it's so bad, why don't you leave? And my answer is for a couple different reasons. And number one, because people hear the word opportunity, right? And there's that little glimmer of hope. But what we're finding with that true opportunity is that workers are being passed over. Workers that have been here for two years and have invested into this company and have also put on a learning ambassador, a learning trainer vest to train other employees, but not receiving any compensation for it. So if those 
those learning ambassadors and those learning trainers and those process assistants are building value for Amazon and training workers to do the great job that they're doing. And they're being passed over for Amazon to hire a fresh out of college grad with no warehouse experience, doesn't know the people in the facility in which they work. Why are those people being passed over? But people hold on to that hope, right? They hold on. They've already invested that time. So if they go somewhere else, they will lose what they've already invested. So they hold on to that. And the other thing, if it's so bad, why don't you leave? We There are workers who have to take the CDTA bus from Albany, Schenectady, and Troy to come to work. They can't afford to take an Uber. So Amazon kind of holds them hostage. This is really the only way because you can't afford to take an Uber to another job. So they hold out. And that's what, you know, I think the atmosphere that we're feeling right now is that little glimmer of hope has now become a true opportunity to define what your future holds. Do you feel like workers who might have never heard what a union was, maybe not know their rights, are starting to have kind of light bulb go off? You saw a young worker really passionately talking before. Yeah. You feel like workers are starting to understand more? They have rights? Absolutely. And that's the incredible thing. Like I said, seven months ago, the word union in here meant termination. And, oh, you can't say that here. But what we've seen over the last seven months is workers educate themselves on the NLRA and realize that, wow, I can have a voice. I can have a say. And educating themselves, rising to the occasion, and really creating another opportunity, right? Another opportunity to have a better quality of life, to have a say in that contract. And that's incredible to think that seven months ago, the word union couldn't even, you couldn't even say it here. And now we say it every single day, all day long with pride. And we're going to use that word and use that opportunity, that true opportunity that we, we, the workers, we brought it. You guys didn't give us the opportunity. We brought that opportunity, and here we are. So it's incredibly powerful to see that. And I'm very inspired by the workers that have had the courage to stand up and say, I get a vote. I get that yes or no. Whether you like it or not, Amazon, here we are. (laughs) Last question. Obviously, you've seen with JFK 8, even after they win, Amazon is fighting to recognize it. They're trying to overturn it. Uh, If you win, what do you think the domino effect is? We know that there's other warehouses now organizing, but another W on the board. Do you think that could have a real momentum shift in terms of seeing a lot in terms of seeing a lot of real momentum shift in terms of seeing a lot more uh, unionized warehouses? Okay, so I just want to correct the first part. It's not if you win, it's when we win. Okay, when we win, it's going to actually change, right? I've been told the nation is watching you guys at ALB1 because we've already won. We beat the objections. We're getting recognition. So now we will demonstrate that we're not going to be shut down. We're not going to be stopped. We want that seat at the table. So when ALB1 workers win and take the power over their future, I think that across the board, it's going to continue to bring hope and inspiration to other Amazon on workers to say we can do this. I mean, this little town in upstate New York, right? This little town in upstate New York, 900 workers have taken the initiative to stand up and say we're going to change the course of our lives and for other people's lives. So I think across the nation, when they see that we are this incredible community and we've continued to demonstrate that Amazon is not going to have this power over us anymore, I think people are going to continue to continue that fight. So that was a video from Status Quo, the outfit of Jordan Cheriton, um, who does pretty good, and interviewing Heather Goodall, um, one of the... Uh, one of the uh, unionization com- uh, one member of the unionization committee at the Albany Amazon warehouse, talking about the union busting effort there. Which I'll point out: any enterprise uh, of any certain size, whenever workers there, employees, or independent contractors start talking about unionizing, they will bring in union, bu- union busting. Uh, that's code uh, or shorthand for talking about. Uh, Anti-union lawyers, consulting firms, they start putting up anti-union propaganda, advertising, and they start leaning on every single employee there. Uh, every, every business does this. Every business. Not only the, the, the behemoths like Amazon, but even the co-op 
here in Albany, honest wait. And even and I was shocked to hear this, um, though not maybe not to, maybe not shocked, but just surprised uh, that the you know, the vegan meat company called No Evil was also doing union busting. This is a place where the mock chicken is called Comrade Cluck, right? Uh, very ex- not not cheap, but it is good. But the owners of it, who, who are these like hippie like you know baby leftists, but it's still like well this is a small business, and they even turn it around and made it you know and this is what the neolibs do, is make it about identity. That's like no 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 you're not workers we're 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 a collective of vegans. And it's actually the meat industry wants you to unionize and hurt our business. They don't want us to grow because it hurts the meat industry. And so you are actually siding with the meat industry. And we're going to appeal to you as vegans to not unionize. That's what they were doing as part of their union busting effort. Um, digress. Back to Amazon where, you know, I'm, uh, you may guess my tone is not happy. They did not win at all. Um, we can discuss the differences I might see. Um, I wasn't on the ground with this effort. It's Skodak. But it's also, as she said, the people who work there, they live in the urban centers. They're the black and brown and NY and light-skinned who live in Schenectady, Troy, Albany, and the other urban areas. And they're commuting, because there's a bus shuttle, I guess, to the Amazon warehouse. So they lost two to one. Big time. Um. From the Times Unions, Amazon workers reject union bid in Skodak. The effort to unionize the local warehouse loses by a two-to-one margin. So, I find this odd, or it's I mean, surprising when I see such a such a, a loss when the organizer sounds confident. Sometimes it seems like you know you lefties, you organizers, you're bullshit. You you do uh, bullpucky as much as uh, any right winger or whatever. Uh, I, I I know I do notice a pattern that when it doesn't look like when they're when they're really going uphill and they don't they're not optimistic about their chances of winning. They will give a statement like that interview you just listened to. They'll say things like, "We're learning hard lessons. We are making an impact, and we're having a lot of good conversations." But they will point out that it's uphill. Maybe they're not getting a lot of buy-in, and we're not sure. But we're going to put in the effort because this is the fight that we need to have. Because whether we unionize or not. Amazon Workers United, not officially recognized by Amazon, and they're going to fight it, but they are a real union, and they do union actions on the floors and in the warehouses, and it has effects. They win things. They get some basics. They just When they ask for things, they can get it as a union because they're an organization. So it's not a loss to do the organizing drive. It is always a win to organize. Even when you don't, quote-unquote, beat the man, you become the man, or you at least become some kind of equal. Read the text. Workers at Amazon's Skodak Fulfillment Center voted 2-1 to against unionizing, ending a weeks-long campaign and delivering a victory to the company and a blow to a nascent national labor movement. I hate, I disagree with that framing, but that's, that's the Hearst. Hearst Corporation's framing. That's a nascent labor movement, and so it's a blow anytime we lose, I suppose. But it's not the end of it, of course. Uh, if we knew our American labor history, you would know we do decades of losses. I mean, the, even the ones that are put in the textbook, like the, the National Railroad Strike, the Pullman Strike, these were losses, right? But they were galvanizing. And these were losses in the 1880s, 1890s. And they became, 30 years later, the, su- the successes. And then it definitely feels like we're in, like I mean, on HBO, the, the Gilded Age is the number one show, and it was just filmed in Albany, actually. It, we are in our new Gilded Age. I mean, the, the new Gilded Age was a book back in the 80s, actually, because that's when certain economists would start to notice, wow, inequality is getting really large. The gap is getting really large between rich and poor. It's like a new Gilded Age. Well, it's only been growing bigger. We are in the new golden age where we have been, an age of 30 to 40 years where everyone's just trying to do what they can within the circumstances and and fighting and for the most part losing. But the next generation, you know, wins. 
At least that's American history. Not sure if it's going to repeat, but it's a certain interpretation I have. So we're glad that our team in Albany was able to have their voices heard and that they chose to keep the direct relationship with Amazon. Oh, of course, the guy lead with who's saying. Amazon corporate spokesperson Kelly Natel said in a prepared statement shortly after the vote, that was 406 to 206, uh, a fledgling, it's fledgling labor, America, Amazon Labor Union, which it's Amazon Workers United, actually. But um, so we're glad that our team in Albany, a team, they were a team, team that has a stroke on the floor. And, and I encourage uh, everyone um, who's curious that there was a full hour of testimonials from all of the committee members and others at a rally that was last Monday, the Monday before last. This vote was just last week. So this is today's news. Uh, Said the usual thing of like, they kept their direct relationship with Amazon because, you know, it's when it's a big megacorp that isn't a person or it's a person in the eyes of the courts. uh, And you, a single worker, that's a direct relationship of equals, right? Um, As we think about this as the best arrangement for both our employees and customers. That's what they all say. The 6-12 vote came from the more than 800 employees at the Fulfillment Center. Two-thirds vote. That's not bad turnout. So it's not the turnout itself to say that, like, oh, it's so big because it wasn't a good turnout. A one-million-square-foot warehouse will, will wear workers, sort packages, prepare items for shipping. In case you don't know what a warehouse does. We will continue to work directly with our teammates in Albany, as we do everywhere, to keep making Amazon better every day, Needle. Mattel said. Sure you're good all. The Amazon worker who organized, well, she was with a committee. Now, oh my God, the now failed union drive, uh, appeared upbeat after the vote tally, saying their organizing effort probably led to a recent $1 an hour raise. She also pledged, so it didn't really fail. It just didn't completely win, uh, completely succeed. Um, but it's not, it, it's only something as a failure. If it does nothing, and that's definitely kind of a failure is sort of an ethic that is anti-capitalist. Um, I'm kind of going to look into a book called The Seven Ethics Against Capitalism. I just um, listened to an interview at work today from the guy who wrote it, and he, uh, he was only asked about one of them, which was slowness. And you know, each of his ethics kind of make up a, a counterculture that exi- maybe already exists, like the slow movement. At least it kind of was in the aughts, the slow food movement, you know, which, which was a bunch of hipsters. Basically, it was a hipster kind of thing, counterculture of like, you know, we hate fast food. We are going to go for slow food, foods that take a long time to prepare. We want our meat smoked, you know. And, of course, eventually uh, Zuckerberg smoking his meats and whatever and all that dumb stuff. Or make pickles or and, and, and other things that take a day to prepare. And uh, and whatever, but see that's the thing. If you take one of these ethics alone, then and that's his message of his book. That if you do one of these things alone, it can get bought up by the system. You know, whether it's slow food or mutual aid or the other things he mentions. Uh, but if you do them all together, they they reinforce each other so that you don't get bought up or you don't force to sell out. This is Goodall. I want to say thank you. We had faced a lot of adversity over the last couple of weeks. Goodall told a small group of reporters gathered outside the federal building downtown where the National Labor Relations Board oversaw the vote count. We're going to go ahead and remain strong. Goodall cited a number of reasons for the defeat, including an aggressive push by Amazon executives to convince workers in mandatory staff meetings that they were better off without a union. They also pointed out a union would have charged $5 a week dues. It's more like $5 a month. I guess it adds up to that, but again, they, they twist the truth so many ways. Um, $1 hourly raise, Goodall added, was announced several weeks ago and was just recently enacted. From that standpoint, she said she believed the union drive was a success. And it certainly would have offset any um, union dues. But of course, then the union dues go to things like throwing parties and things that Amazon will never do for you. So it's not like you lose the money. But that's one of the lies. That, oh, it goes to some labor board in some far-off city where it goes to line union boss pockets. Well, maybe that's when they were, like, you know, in with the mob and other big crazy mistakes in the 50s. 
Anti-union workers had said that the pay, which includes ample overtime and surge bonuses during busy periods, weren't bad for the skills involved in packing and shipping boxed items. They also said they liked the fact that benefits such as health care started at the beginning of one's employment. A warehouse job isn't a career, said one worker at a pro-union rally earlier in the month. She said those seeking higher pay need to acquire more marketable skills. That's someone who's completely brain-broken. By that, I mean brainwashed. Eventually, every job can be said isn't a career. Or, like, what is the career? What marketable skills? Coding? We all have to be coders if we want a good pay, good benefits. We need to be coders. What happens when half the country are coders? What happens when enough people are coders? And, you know, then they will ship those jobs and have Indian coders do it for half the cost. And then you'll be left to get more marketable skills again. And then the cycle continues. Today's vote count was closely watched along across the U.S. where unions are attempting to make inroads into the service industry and companies are trying to stop their advances. Of the multi-day vote was completed shortly before noon. Um, earlier this month, U.S. Senator Gillibrand joined a rally with pro-union workers in Skodak, drawing media attention for the vote. Oh, there was only media attention because the senator was there? Come on. This is the second Amazon union vote in the country. And Amazon's the, one of the biggest country, companies in the country. Shouldn't that be make it newsworthy enough? They're just mentioning she showed up. Good honor, I guess. Smalls, a former employee who led the successful vote, and by the way, because he was fired for doing so, to unionize a much larger Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, condemned the vote. Everyone involved with ALU is filled with mixed emotions. By Canadian voting means the, the, the outcome, not the vote itself. I'm proud of the brave workers in upstate New York who stood up in the face of a vicious anti-union campaign to challenge a trillion-dollar corporation. Small said insisting Tuesday's vote won't be the end of efforts to unionize the Skodak facility. Never is. Union membership nationally has declined to 10% of wage and salaried workers as of 2021, according to U.S. Bureau of Labor Stats. That's down from a peak of 35% in 1954. That's still very, very meager. Only 35%. That was the high? Yeah. But but just think about what was accomplished in the 40s and 50s with 35% unionization. Many of those jobs were in manufacturing and heavy industry, and as those industries consolidated, were offshored, and shrunk through automation over the decades, union membership fell as well. The recent surge, well, you just get rid of the jobs, right? If if a union is tied to your job, all the better. Why? Maybe you should be in a union that isn't tied to your job, but just you're a member of it regardless of where you work. That's where the IWW comes in. You're a a member of the IWW anywhere you work. You just create um, organizing units at workplaces that are affiliated with the one big union. That is trade unionism in a nutshell. Uh, The surge in union labor follows the shift to jobs to the service sector, including retail. Of course, this is a shift that's been occurring over a lifetime, so it's it's just stating some, you know, basic, like, you know, 2 plus 2 equals 4. The color of trees are green. In the capital region, a spat of Starbucks coffee shops have successfully unionized, as well as several not-for-profit Profits. I'm just going to call them nonprofits, human services orgs, including Troy's Joseph's House, where I used to work, a homeless shelter, and the Northeast Parent and Child Society. And there's a unionization effort, um, or if they're successful, at, at Capital Roots. I think they're already done with that. Actually, they won. While those work, yes, actually, you know, they did win over Capital Roots as well. While those workers joined established unions, SEIU and CSEA, respectively, the Amazon union, like Starbucks, was created independently. Workers, it says by smalls, but come on. Uh, New York has the highest nation at 22%, or more than double the national rate, thanks to historic trends and a friendly political climate. Such Democratic Party propaganda saying like, oh yes, it's thanks to us friendly, you know, us Democrats, we're, we show up to your rally. We don't do anything to actually help you unionize, actually. We just show up and say, we're pro-union. 
and then actually fight, you know, union good union contracts uh, at the state level, and don't push the national level at all for card check and things like that. Things that would help unionization happen. I would like to maybe maybe I need to hear it out of someone's mouth before I start debunking. You know, the de- Democrat. What what do you Democrats do for unions? Um, for unionization and to keep that strong because I guess favorable just means there's no laws against unionization or things that, oh, yeah, no, no, okay, I, I just remember what they're referring to. They're referring to the fact that we're not a right-to-work state, that when you pay union dues, like when if you're in a unionized workplace, you are, quote-unquote, forced to pay union dues. I mean, you pay dues for the union so you're represented and get a better contract, and you get better pay, benefits, etc. In other states, it's been ruled, or right to work, you know, it's allowed, with right to work laws, as they're called, another misnomer, a right to work for less. Your right to uh, work in a workplace that could be uni- is unionized, but now you're not going to pay into it, and this basically made sure unions were defanged. So they couldn't maintain union membership, they couldn't maintain good representation, and so the contracts get worse, and it's like, well, why do you even have a union? And then boom, boom, boom. Now it's halved. To Starbucks, workers at Trader Joe's supermarket in New York City have petitioned for a union vote, and stores in Minneapolis, as well as Haiti Mass, have voted to unionize. Good on them. Um, Earlier this month, employees at an Apple computer store in Oklahoma City voted to unionize, along with one in Townsend, Maryland. Companies have typically pushed back on union drives. Typically, yes. Amazon is continuing to contest the Staten Island vote, although the company lost the first round of an administrative appeals process for the National Labor Relations Board. Starbucks recently offered pay and benefits increases to the bulk of its employees nationally who are not unionized, saying the union shops would now have to bargain over those issues. And that's, that was their kind of response to stop the union movement in its tracks. See, but of course, they only did this because the unionization started. So, you know, and that's kind of how uh, capitalism may keep us in its thrall, but also just how it adapts, and let's put it positively, I guess, how it adapts to the circumstances of changing times and the demands of, quote-unquote, the people. It will give us what it wants, but on its terms. You know, corporate, like when you push for something, the corporation will relent and say, oh, okay, we'll give you both benefits, but we're going to do it, not because you have agency. We're not, you still don't have agency. Unions, through a union, you have agency, but you're not going to have it. So that's the kind of thing that you're missing out on if you don't go all the way. Or, oh, what's the point of having a union if the corporation is going to give you benefits and a dollar raise every now and then? Because you had no agency. You had no agency whatsoever. That's the word I'm going to stick with. There should be another one I could come, I could use. Don't you want control over your life? It, it kind of, you know, besides that, oh, you can go somewhere else. Where? If you don't have the marketable skills. Oh, well, you have to go to school. Oh, well, what do you have to do to go to school? Well, it's not free or low cost, so you have to take out big loans and you have to be in debt. So now we have to be not only a wage slave, but a debt slave. Wonderful. What a country. Staffing has led to pay increases and competitive competition for workers. I wonder what caused that. While New York's minimum wage is 13.20 upstate, one would be hard-pressed to find any employer who isn't paying at least 15 an hour because there is a movement for 15 an hour. And that's what got the state to move forward with the uh, minimum wage hikes. But again, a higher minimum wage puts pressure on what the average starting wage is. Of you know, but it isn't always 15. Some will just go minimum or 14, and so on. Amazon workers had started at just under 16 with benefits prior to the recent raise. As with the other employers, Amazon workers have also said they don't have enough co-workers to adequately handle their respective duties. So they're actually short-staffed, but also it's just a matter of high turnover. I wonder why there's high turnover. Well, so it's not a career move. It's not flipping burgers either, but guess what? I've met people, and by the way, 
manufacturing job. What what the hell? Warehouses count as industrial labor jobs. Part of manufacturing, part of the heavy industry. It was part of the loop. It was part of those industries. And people used to, because they were unionized and good paying, they would have a career in a warehouse. They would work a warehouse job for 30 years until their body was you know, broken enough, I suppose. So I know we're anything about the labor issue and the union busting. So uh, this is uh, What's Left in Albany. I didn't even announce the title of the show. Uh, I'm Dan Platt, your host. I, uh, as Kanye would, as Ye would say, I am Jew, uh, but not one of the lost tribes, the, um, the knowable tribes. And about that, I'll save that for Bread Theory, the Twitch stream that I do every other Sunday, and that will be this Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Twitch, where I do Sunday Fun Day with uh, Zach. Bread theory. So uh, two transportation stories uh, instead of housing and landlords, though I could go there next. But I have two stories lined up now, both from time to you, of course. Uh, this one is Schenectady, Albany, top most dangerous U.S. cities for for pedestrians. For each city over 50,000 residents, researchers calculated the proportion of drivers reporting one or more citations for failing to yield the right of way to a pedestrian. This is filed by Pete DeMolia. Uh, he puts the date line as Schenectady. Pedestrians beware. A new report shows that, well, we're already very aware. A new report shows that two local cities, both Schenectady and Albany, topped the list for the most dangerous cities in the U.S. for pedestrians in 2022. Schenectady ranked two, while Albany clocked in at 12. This is out of 20. This list was compiled by Insurify, an insurance comparison marketplace. So they're crunching the numbers in an objective, for-profit manner, as it is their business to know what the risks risks are uh, for car insurance. And that's how you set the best, most profitable car insurance rate, so you know that they're trying to do their due diligence, unless they make up the numbers button. The top 20 cities with the highest share of these drivers were ranked as the most dangerous. When applying for car insurance, drivers disclose information such as where they live and their driving history, wrote Insurify on their website, in addition to any moving violations on their record within the past seven. The findings reveal 38 drivers out of 10 grand, 10,000 in Schenectady were cited for failing, failing to yield to a pedestrian, which is about 10 times higher than the national average. Albany logged in to 25 drivers per 10,000, notching a slightly lower six times than national average. The list nationwide was topped by Elizabeth, New Jersey, Concord, what? Oh, Concord, California, and Roseville, California. And then Manchester, Connecticut, taking fifth place. This isn't the first time Schenectady has been flagged for having bad drivers. Just last Monday, Insurify used... So these are people who live in these cities, right? Not just getting getting ticketed there. Last month, Insurify used a similar methodology to determine which cities in each state had the worst drivers. In that study, researchers turned their database to compare the number of drivers with a prior at-fault moving violation on record within the last seven years against an overall driving population. The city in each state with the largest share of drivers with an at-fault violation on record was deemed the worst driving city. So New York Schenectady led the pack with 20% of drivers with a at-fault violation, which is 43% greater than the state average. As for the city with the best drivers, the honors go to Waterbury, Connecticut, which has the lowest traffic infraction rate of any city in the U.S., with 10% of drivers having a prior traffic violation on record, a share that is 40% lower. This is what they've, the Insurify company determined. So it's one source, one listing by some insurance actuaries. On the subject of pedestrianizing, I guess, is the next story filed by Abigail Rubel, also in June, same week. Getting there, region receives $27 million in pedestrian and bike improvement funding. And this is over the whole region, so to me, like, it, this is a pittance. 27 million. What does that pay for, right? 
Capital Region is set to receive $27 million in transportation funding to promote environmentally friendly modes of travel. Not going to be enough. But this is what's been announced by Governor Kolkel last week. The funding is part of 178, well, I'll say $179 million awarded to 75 communities across New York, you know, in the Hunger Games. Statewide, more than two-thirds of the projects will benefit environmental justice communities consisting of predominantly low-moderate income. You know, a half million will be in the South End, a half million will be Oliver Arbor Hill. Local projects include three miles of sidewalks, wow, a whole three miles, bike lanes and other pedestrian-friendly enhancements in Cahos. That's three miles in Cahos. That's roughly four and a half million. Expanded Capital uh, District Transportation Authority bus service, ZTA bus service, along the Washington Western Ave corridors. So upgrading their uh, bus shelters and stuff. And um, I guess that's money going towards the new, um, the, late, the, the third bus bus route that will be going on Washington. Uh, and that's about $5 million. Improvements to the Craig Street p- Pedestrian Bridge in Schenectady, $2 million. Traffic safety and pedestrian connectivity improvements in Wilton, about $2 million. And intersection and pedestrian upgrades in Nassau, $2.5 million. Additionally, Bethlehem will receive $1.5 million for a paved multi-use path along Cherry Avenue extension. Clifton Park will receive $1.5 or $1.8 million for enhanced pedestrian bike facilities along their main street, which you know we call it Clifton Park because you park your car there, and driving in there is like parking, having your car parked, because uh, you don't move a lot. Um, Glenville will receive one and a half million for sidewalks along Freeman's Bridge Road. Kinderhook will receive one point eight million for improvements along Albany Avenue. Notice these are just listing one street. Basically, everywhere just gets one street improved. That's really good improve uh, in, uh, let's see, what, how did the governor put it? Promote environmentally friendly modes of travel, making it easier and safer to walk or bike, you know, along that one street. Because everything, I guess everything happens in every town along one street. If it's a hamlet, yes, it does. Uh, I'm not going to quote Tonko because he just says the same thing all the time. Again, these are these are you know investment vital investments uh, that connect people to their jobs, schools, and community. So long as you only do something along one avenue, I, I, I know sometimes they're connecting to previously existing sidewalks or improved areas, but again, it's. It's so little. The money comes from the Federal Highway Administration and is administered by the state DOT. Because, uh, I'll point out, all of these improvements are going along county-slash-state routes. So these aren't local streets or anything like that. Um, They're improvements so that, uh, again, these are just a few miles. So it's not like it's making it possible to bike from one town to another without using the main uh, river bike path, which to me is still the most, I guess, um, effective way of biking around the region, uh, if, at least if you're going between Albany, Troy, and Schenectady, Tri-City area. So um, uh, corollary to this, I did go to the um, Capital District, no, is it Capital District Regional Planning Committee, and they had all their boards up with all of the ways they were spending money or how the money was getting spent and what projects it was going to. Um, they basically had municipalities basically kind of, they, it was, it's always on local too. Um, as it should be, I guess, propose all of the things they want to do. And they used algorithms to decide to, to chop up the money where it should go and where it should, like, where it would be most economically effective. But of course, we're talking about an economic paradigm of making money, and by making money, I mean what is most profitable in today's market, as opposed to what is actually making our cities more sustainable. These are intention slash in opposition. Really, they are. Because you can decarbonize, but you can't, 
you also have to decapitalize. Otherwise, it's just, well, we still have to grow. We still have to grow economically. And that means everyone has to keep driving. Everyone has to keep commuting to their jobs, making, doing all of the non-work or half, you know, useful work. Packing, packing, packing stuff in Amazon mm-hmm. to consume. But again, it's not enough to just be anti-consumption or whatever, anti-consumerist, right? That that can be that can ju- that just leads to the subculture of minimalism, and, and and that's just another kind of grift. Not trying to play into that at all. It's got to be combined with this mutualism that, like, no, we actually do want our communities to be better. I want to be able to bike from place to place without getting run over or feeling like I'm about to get run over like every step of the way until we get these kind of improvements like, you know, widening the shoulder and things like that. Oh yeah. So I want to finish that. Like most of the money being spent on our um, upgrading, our infrastructure is on bridges. It's all the major spending was the bridges. Everything else was a pittance, you know, a million here, a million there, which goes for like, you know, it's like a million dollars a mile. Uh, meanwhile, the bridges were like fifty, fifty million dollars, um, and these are because the, you know, the 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 bridges are like grade D, they're about to engi- engineering wise fail, and and these are the bridges that are necessary to keep the flows of commuter traffic and other types of co- commerce uh, going, uh, as it is now. Otherwise, it would have to slow down. We can't have that. Can it? Cannot be slow. Can't slow down at all. Okay. So, two housing stories. One of them is very, very short. It's literally just a blurb. But the other one's a little more in-depth and uh, makes me angry. So, what do you do when you're homeless? Where, where do you actually live? Where are you allowed to sleep and not be harassed? You know, it's like, this is supposed to be a free country, right? Oh, you can at least homestead and mix your labor with the land, and then it can be yours, like old times. No, you're not really allowed to do that. All the land is owned. It's owned by somebody. Even if it's on public land, you know, it's now you're still trespassing. You don't have a right. Uh, in Saratoga Springs, 20 homeless people told, but of course they weren't really homeless. They were living there. They had actually built quote-unquote homes. They were shacks, but 20 homeless people told to move out for development. Some, yes, I'll move on. And blazing heat, volunteers carried mattresses and coolers through the forest Friday. This was during the summer. It was a moving day for 20 people who had been camping for years amid the trees by the Amtrak station parking lot. Next week, a developer plans to buy the 17 acres of vacant forest by the station. The broker for the sale asks the city police to charge the residents with there with trespassing in an effort to get them to move before the closing. The land was never been fenced off or posted as private, but a police officer handed out a letter that from Markwood Enterprises that said everyone must leave by July 4th. Happy Independence Day! Don't Isn't it grand you live in America? The freest country in the world. The broker and Markwood did not respond to repeated requests for comment. It's ours. It's ours to do with. It's ours. We have a right, property right. Markwood Enterprises, an investment and development firm, is based in Beverly Hills, California. They're not even a local uh, scumbag development court. Uh, the current owner, Mahaya Nandizada, maybe Iranian, also lives in Beverly Hills. City officials did not know whether Markwood represents the property's current owner or its prospective buyer. Residents took the letter seriously. On Friday, with the help of workers from RISE, Housing Support Services, and I guess the Salvation Army, they packed up all their belongings and began taking apart shelters that they had spent years erecting. How long? There are squatters' rights. They're just very minimal here in America, but there are squatters' rights. And this comes into play. This is mentioned. Like They, they did not want to pursue their squatters' rights. Because these are the most beaten down people in society, and I don't want trouble," said resident Lori Savage. Added, "They have a right to do what they want when they own the property." Very defeatist. Moving will save a lot of problems. Sooner or later, they are going to build. She has lived there for four years with salvaged pallets and tree trunks. 
She built a small shack. I really can't move my shack in three days, she said. But it does take longer for development to start. I plan to do it piece by piece, especially my floor. It's nice and solid and off the ground. That's why, uh, you know, for makeshift shelters, pallets are great because they, they, you can just put them on the ground and boom, you're above the ground. And so anything you, like, stack on the pallet because, you know, how much weight a pallet can take. You know, good pallet, you can stack up, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds, thousand pounds. Um, you know, you can build all kinds of things off those pallets. It's just not going to have a solid foundation, but then you get some cinder blocks. And, all right. Digressing. Uh, now she will use a tent. Not trespassing. Public Safety Commissioner James Monk Tagnino said the police cannot issue trespassing tickets if the residents stay. It's not fenced. It's not posted, he said. People tell me it's been an encampment for decades. Since the land is not posted, you're not trespassing. Residents said they had lived there for years. That means that they must get formally evicted, says the safety commissioner. You simply can't throw them out, he said. These people have certain rights. That's interesting that it's like the cop that says, yeah, these people have rights. <laughs> he speculated that some might even able to claim ownership under adverse possession rights, a.k.a. squatter's rights. I'd love to see an enterprising young attorney say this is not a simple eviction, he said. In any case, he said the police will not get involved, which would have been very encouraging if uh, someone with their pro bono you know, took on this task. But um, it mentions that the, the 20 people weren't interested in doing this. In any case, he said the police will not get involved. We're not going to evict for a private owner, he said. This was like a first. I've heard of this ever being the case. Residents liked his reasoning, but said there was no point in trying to fight a developer. And this, and by the way, this is the, the subtitle, No Power to Fight. But with 20 people, they do have power. They're so beaten down. They're so convinced by this our society. As it's, it tries to convince us every day that we have no power. It's terrible. That's that's the real tragedy. That's the real sad part. We could put it on hold, but eventually you're going to have to get out, said Stephen Harris. They have more power. They have more money. We have nothing but our tents. I think they have more than their tents. But maybe I see more there in them than the rest of Saratoga Springs does, which is moving to pass laws against panhandling. And they're framing it. They're they're putting in very vague wording, which, you know, if broadly applied, means you you, know, you couldn't do any petitioning, no no soliciting of any kind. They're saying like aggressive soliciting for resources of any kind. So no money, you know, no like you know fundraising effort, no bake sale, no you know all of that could go under panhandling if applied broadly, but they're like, oh, no, no, no. They're, they're literally going to say, no, we're going to make it vague be so we can decide who we charge with it. It's got to be people we don't like, people we don't think are worthy of human decency. Okay, so this is um, Stephen Harris has lived there for eight years, which is definitely long enough to claim squatters' rights if it was a building, but I think it should apply to land too. In the winter, he goes to the code blue shelter. When that closes, he goes back to the forest. Sometimes there's still snow on the ground, he said. But it's safer than city shelters and urban gathering sites, he said. There's too much crazy stuff on the streets. I got a tooth knocked out. I had to get stitches, he said. This is what happens. He has already moved to a part of the forest outside the area that will be sold. Leaving, leaving the forest for an apartment isn't an option. They cannot afford housing without help. McCammon residents said they have been on waiting lists for years for assistance. So this is a good answer to those say, like, why don't they just get help? There's plenty of help out there. No, there isn't, you ignorant, ignorant fool. We have nowhere to go, Savage said. Resident Ralph Wendell, who spent Friday moving his belongings to a site near Harris, chose to put up a tent instead of staying at a homeless shelter where he was placed after getting a pacemaker a year ago. It was a really rough area, he said. He prefers the forest. 
Rye's volunteers moved his heavy items for him, worried about his heart. He was left to fold up his tent. One of the last things he he did was to climb on a plastic crate to take down a decorative sign in the shape of a tiger face. A friend of mine died. He gave me that, he said. He's taking it with him, wherever he ends up. And this is written by Kathleen Moore. It's not just a personal problem of convincing themselves that they have no power. Everyone in Saratoga Springs basically tells them they have no power. It takes others with the privilege to stand up for others and say, no, you do have rights. You, you are a person. I will help. I'll put something. I have to risk something. Put on the line. or I'll use my time. And it, it may, be, may be slow, but slow is the opposite of how the developer thinks. And to say, oh, we can't stop it. No. Tons of developments across the country, in our area, are slowed and stopped by dedicated uh, organizing and activism. Pipelines have been delayed over years, and it costs the company, corporation, pushing for it. And these are national, like, you know, multi-state pipelines. They're, they're delayed so long, they have to, like, scrap the whole deal. They have to scrap the whole project because it's costing too much. And the courts just don't even want to put up, like, they're breaking contracts because of delays. It is worth fighting if there's enough people involved or if you get enough people. So you have to do that baseline work. It sucks that it's so much work. But you can win. And people do win. It's not just a hypothetical. So let's see. A short little thing that I you know, grabbed because uh, you know, it's sort of a I don't know, positive story, I guess. But Schenectady City Court orders landlord to pay six hundred and sixty five and a half thousand in fines for multiple code violations. Short blurbs. City of Schenectady claims a landlord hasn't been maintaining his properties. Schenectady City Court has found Ahmad Halim guilty of multiple property code violations. He has been ordered to pay the amount I listed six six hundred and sixty five and a half grand. Now Halim is speaking out. Oh, he's speaking out, not the uh, tenants. Halim is the general manager of Al Hab LLC. His company is based in Maryland. The city of Schenectady says he owns 13 properties. Well, if it's based in Maryland, then why is he managing property in Maryland? What's he doing up here? What is it with these companies? It's, they're just tentacles coming out all over the place. He owns 13 properties where eight are facing code violations. Many of the properties had things like cracked windows, siding, and even chip paint. Schenectady Mayor Gary McCarthy says absent landlords create a safety concern for neighbors. However, Halim claims he has been responsible and claims the mayor has been willing to work with him. Oh, yes, it takes two, right? It takes two to do everything. Well, you know, if the city has to work with a private owner to get things done, then it's not quite private anymore. No, it's, it's private but with subsidy. Because that's all the government's good for, right? It can't actually run anything. It can't own anything. But it can regulate our, uh, our, if it can regulate our society, but it's up to us to do everything. You're on your own, but the government's going to regulate you. Regulate how you do it. And that's the, that's the worst of both sides. Market versus government. His properties are not maintained. We have gone through a prolonged court process with this. It has resulted in substantial judgments against him, said McCarthy. I am coming to see what the problem is. We can work together and make sure if there is a violation, we will be happy, more than happy to correct it. And he says, no, no, we are not interested in that, said Helene. McCarthy is hoping the city will be able to collect the money from him. This is Helene talking in that last paragraph. I am coming to see what the problem is. We can work together. So it's like he was unaware things were so bad. And it's like, oh, well, you know, if the city let me know uh, before they find me, um, you know, I would have uh, acted to fix it. I may be projecting my bias. Last, um, moving from housing to uh, public safety or police accountability, rather. We have an Albany Community Police Review Board, which has always existed or it's existed for the last 20 years. But they were, like, step one was create the board. They don't have any teeth and they don't have any authority to fire, uh, do a, actually hold our police force accountable. But they could advise and they could kind of act as a watchdog. 
Uh, that was a step one for the last 20 years or generation. Now the next generation, now they actually, you know, we passed a ordinance, rather than not passed, we voted for it here in Albany, to uh, give them the powers to actually hold police accountable and the tools they need. Now it needs to be funded, though. What's the point of passing a law saying that something must be so without giving it the resources to actually happen? And for this, they're seeking um, about $3 million uh, in uh, next year's budget, which is a five-fold increase. But considering they have five times more authority <laughs> to do things, uh, then, yeah, they should have five times the money. Albany Community Police Review Board is looking to increase its budget by nearly five times. The board is also looking for changes in the way they look into complaints for police misconduct. And there are many ways, and they don't have to look for it. It's well, this is well-treaded ground for police accountability, police review, which is actually why they, where they came up with the figure, actually. So basically, the law says that uh, they need at least 1% of the police budget. 1% of the police budget. The norm for these bodies, that uh, boards that actually hold their police accountable or, or can act, act adequately address complaints, they usually get 5% of the budget. So that's what the new uh, amount reflects. The Community Police Review Board is looking to recruit their own investigators to address complaints and review internal police investigations because... Police don't tell anyone but internally what they're doing. This is just one of the reasons why the board is asking for about $3 million. According to the board's chair, Nairobi Vives, Vives, this number is based on national funding recommendations, which hovers around 5%. She also said that this is the amount needed for the board to operate effectively. In Thursday's meeting, the board announced they received 244 applications for investigators and plan on interviewing 10 of them. Wow, that's quite a lot. We're going to start that process and hopefully be done with that process before Halloween. So that is the goal. But a lot of this is contingent based on our funding and what next year looks like, said one of the board members during the meeting. In addition to hiring investigators, the board also wants to operate as an oversight administrative agency within the city instead of relying on outside contracts for administrative work, which is how they have existed, not a part of the city, but like almost like a nonprofit accessory of the city. Like they weren't actually a legal body. And that's kind of what the new vote was for, to basically make them actually have legal and political power. Wouldn't that be grand? We also have, um, quoting, um, who are we quoting? I guess the board's leader. We have also elected to have an executive directive director structure and support staff, said Vives during the meeting. So our budget includes six staff people, along with proposed $3,000 stipends for all nine of the board members. It was all volunteer before. In addition, our budget includes, which by the way is like if you get volunteer labor, then it's going to be like I can only give a few hours a week to this. It's not like I can't treat this like a part-time job, which is what it is. In addition, our budget includes the technology, office space, overhead, and all things necessary to operate, you know, as an actual organization that can do things. Uh, my phrasing. We are advocating to become, to model an independent agency or department instead of having an administrative agency model. So with that, obviously, we need a budget increase, but we also need some legislative changes. The board has the choice to investigate complaints alongside Albany Police, or conduct their own investigations. I mean, I think the point of having an independent review board is they do their own investigations, thus they need to pay people. So far, the board has responded to more than 32 complaints, independently investigating four of them. So is that, is that in the last year, or is that over their history? Because I, I can imagine they've only been able to investigate four complaints. That's kind of why we had the vote to give them the authority to have teeth and the budget to have teeth. Because so far, when there's been a police complaint, we have this review board, and they really haven't been able to do anything except, you know, talk about it. I want to call them back, but anyway, I'm going to wrap up the show. And I started early, so I will end early. It's been so long since I've done the show, I've almost forgotten how I do it. 
Um, but that's fine. I do have a new intro music coming up. I'll have that by next month, uh, assuming, if all things go well. And uh, let's see, housekeeping. Uh, I usually do, I usually play that uh, myself out, but I do have my website with the full archive of the Three Left Show, my two-hour politi- left-wing politics and theory show, 147 episodes uh, of the two-hour program that I've done here for the last four years. And I want to shout out that WCAALP is going to be up, and I'm rebuilding the schedule. So anyone and everyone interested in a show, if you produce a podcast, or if you just want to do some audio or anything like that, maybe you haven't done it before, but you're interested, all are welcome to learn, to produce, to do things collectively, to have a community not just do it alone in your room if you're a podcaster. Um, build your audience with us. Do it locally. Do it for... Do, build the infrastructure for a better world so that we can operate just a little bit freer, free from, uh, you know, have some media independence and all that stuff um, to be able to produce and disseminate information. That is what we uh, are all needed, so we don't fall into the mind prisons uh, of like the type that Kanye West is in. So anyway, with that, I will leave you uh, with the end of the show. Be well, thank you. Uh, 3lefts.news is the website where you can find uh, the 3 Left show, and I will start posting the What's Left in Albany episodes, which will be these one hour. With that, Avita Zane, and have a good one.